0: This is who we are. Welcome to the Tabletop Inventing Podcast. How
1: important are failures in the process of success? And just how different is a career in computer science in 1977 from a degree in computer science in 2015? Can small town students find success in the real world? Join us for the down-home answers on today's podcast. Hey there, Innovation Nation. Today's guest is from my hometown of Franklin, North Carolina. Franklin is a small town in the Smoky Mountains and home to some of the most down-to-earth, gentle, gracious folks in the country. I'm not biased or anything. As a kid, I always dreamed about growing up to be significant. And businessmen like Mr. Drake fired my imagination. However, as a young teenager, No one told me how to get on that path to significance. Unfortunately, many young teenagers are like I was, a little misguided. I didn't know what it took to realize great dreams. But T.E. Lawrence, an English archaeologist and military officer, sums up the process quite poetically. He says, all men dream, but not equally. Those who dream by night in the dusty recesses of their minds, wake in the day to find that it was vanity but the dreamers of the day are dangerous men for they may act their dreams with open eyes to make it possible this I did great deeds do not begin on the drawing board they begin in the heart perhaps rather than trying to find out how great our students are by testing them we should instead spend time working to inspire them at tabletop inventing we exist to inspire teenagers Our summer inventors boot camps, after-school inventor workshops, and exclusive tech mentoring are all designed to inspire students to aim higher. Our globe is facing significant challenges over the next 20 years, and today's students will be the ones to solve many of the current problems. Students must learn that they can find the answers they need through research, experimenting, and collaborating with others. They need to discover just how powerful they really can be. But these realizations will not happen by accident. The proper environment for innovative creative learning is essential. Learn more at inventingzone.com. Today's guest is no stranger to innovation. Phil Drake started programming a computer in 1977 when computers still had to be programmed by hand if you wanted them to do anything. You might think that such a forward-thinking individual would come from New York City or LA or San Francisco, but this entrepreneur started life on a farm as the son of the local tax man. Let's listen in to the story of a fascinating homegrown businessman. So my guest today is Phil Drake and Phil is from my hometown and I remember the Drake Software Company as I was growing up and I'm gonna spend some time today getting to know a man that I have only heard about. And he told me a couple of interesting things. He has about 13 businesses that he manages, which is a mouthful just to say. Uh, He's a grandfather, and he's old enough to retire, but he doesn't want to. So tell us about that, Phil.
0: Okay, well, first of all, I, I grew up on a farm. My dad was an accountant who opened a tax practice here in 1954, and I never wanted to be an accountant. That's something I never wanted to do. I wanted to be a high school teacher. So I went to Davidson College, got a degree, and I taught high school for three years. But then my dad's health started failing, so I came back here to Franklin, went to work with him, and did tax returns with a pencil. And after doing tax returns with a pencil, I remembered why I didn't want to do tax returns. (laughs) So we bought a computer in 1977. I programmed it, I was convinced I could program it, so I programmed it to do tax returns. And then over the years, after about 15 years, we became successful. It took us a long time to be successful. And I used the revenue from the software company to expand into other things in and around Franklin. So we run some retail places, we have a print shop, we have two retail stores, we have a family entertainment center, We have a performing arts center. We're an internet service provider. And we even teamed up with the Eastern Band of Cherokee Indians to build a 250 mile fiber ring in Western North Carolina. And and connect all of the schools in Western North Carolina with high speed fiber. So we we do lots of stuff. So I guess as a
1: kid uh, growing up here in Franklin, I didn't realize that you had been a teacher. So
0: what was the interest early on in being a teacher? I don't know if you remember L.C. Howard, who was a math teacher at the high school. That is probably before your time. Yeah. <laughs> but he, he was a great math teacher. I sort of idolized him. I, I really wanted his job. But unfortunately, when I got out of school, he still had his job. <laughs> uh, so I, I wasn't going to get it. So we moved to Greenville, South Carolina right after I got married. But I love teaching. And, and if I had been able to make a living... Uh, teaching, I I would probably still be doing that. I I would already have over thirty years of teaching in. Uh, And really if my dad's health hadn't started failing, I probably would have continued teaching as well. So
1: was there something in particular about the teaching that drew you or was it just that you liked uh, Mr. Howard's uh, approach to teaching and just wanted to influence kids like that? What was it about the teaching?
0: Well I really had some great teachers in in Franklin High School but he developed my love of mathematics he just inspired me to do that and then I had a couple of other teachers my band teacher James Harwell I loved what they did and how they got me to love the things that they were teaching and I wanted to do that for other uh, people I love teaching it's one of the reasons I teach Sunday school today you know I've taught Sunday school for over 30 years I love being in front of a group and preparing the lesson and then communicating what I have learned into them and, and seeing their eyes light up. That's a valuable thing for me. So have you brought aspects of that love of teaching into your businesses? I think I have, especially in the early years. I heard people who did not know how to program computers and I taught them how to program computers. Because in, in the late 70s and early 80s, there were almost no computer science programs back then. So I would hire people who had a degree in business or in accounting and sit them down in front of a computer and teach them how to program. So one of the things that I had to learn was, and honestly I was not very good at this in the beginning, was I was not good at letting them make mistakes. I was sort of a perfectionist, and I wanted them to do it my way instead of doing it their way. And it took me a long time to learn that there's more than one right way to do something. Learning how to let go is, is difficult for a type A perfectionist, but I, <laughs> but I did eventually learn that.
1: So describe then maybe how you approached teaching, if we can put that in quotation marks, a couple of the early business professionals who you taught to program, and uh, maybe some of the later ones. How did your approach change? What what kinds of specifics
0: did you do differently? Well, one of the things that was different is by the time we got to the mid-90s, we were able to hire people that had computer science degrees because they could, you know, they went to school for computer science. So we we were able to find people that already had that kind of background. That was extremely rare in 1977. You know, in, in 1977, to put it in perspective, that was before the PC came out. So there were no personal computers. The computer we bought was a mini computer, and it was IBM's first computer that you could move with a hand truck and plug into a 110 outlet uh, that didn't require an air-conditioned room. So that was very early on in computers. and. In fact, I was 27, and it was the first time I had ever seen a computer that had a video display on. How
1: did you end up deciding to connect a computer with the tax business? Because you started off, obviously, you know, pencil and paper, as you described. What sparked that idea to to bring in computers in the first place?
0: Well, I knew that there were computers out there, and I knew I didn't like doing tax returns with a pencil. (laughs) You know, I sent letters off to... IBM, Burroughs, NCR, Wang, uh, several others, and back then you didn't go to a computer store, a computer salesman would come around. So we actually had several computer salesmen come around, and the first computer we bought was $22,385. That's That's 1977 dollars. That's a significant investment. (laughs) That was a significant investment, but the IBM guy that came in, rolled a computer in on a hand truck and he brought a programming manual and I flipped through the programming manual and in 30 minutes or so I was able to read enough so that I knew I could learn it I knew I could learn how to program that computer even though I had never had any programming background I knew that I could learn it so I convinced my dad for us to borrow money and buy this computer but it was primarily because I did not want to work as hard as my dad did I wanted, I, I wanted to automate what we were doing by hand. Lazy people make the best entrepreneurs, <laughs> um, and, and so I was, I was a little bit lazy. I didn't want to work as hard as he did, so th- that's sort of why I wanted to automate things.
1: So, for some of the people in our audience who may not be familiar, because I remember, I, I actually when I was uh, under the stairs the other day, because I came back and visited my parents and uh, we were talking earlier before we started the interview that I, I went back to my, quote, lab under the stairs in the basement. There's actually an, an Epson 8088 <laughs> computer under there, yeah. which isn't as old as what you're talking about. That came out in the mid 80s. Right. And by that point, there were applications, ValDocs sure. and a few other things, peach textus, I some of these things are just floating around the back of my mind. But when you got, that computer in 1977, were there any prepackaged programs that you could start with to do what you wanted to do?
0: No, it came with a programming language. It did not come with any applications at all. All right.
1: I just wanted our audience to hear you say that. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so the, the, the only thing it had was a programming language, and I, and I programmed it first to do some payroll, uh, print payroll checks. Then I programmed it to do some basic bookkeeping. And then I thought, you know what, the thing that I spend most time on is doing tax returns. I'm going to program it to do some of the main forms. And I had no idea that I could ever sell software to anybody else. That was not my goal. In fact, nobody else that I knew had a computer, so who was going to buy software? (laughs) But as it turns out, because, you know, God really kind of put me in the right place at the right time. We were very early. We had developed some software before the PC came out. I was able to convert it to the PC when the PC came out. So, I sort of had a leg up in the software arena by the time 1981 came around and the PC came out. Then computers were more affordable, people were willing to buy them. I was w- able to sell software to other people that I, I never imagined I'd be able to do that.
1: So, we've looked a little over some of the history here and I guess I'd like to back up a little because we talked about your high school experience tell us a little bit about what it felt like coming from your grade school experience into high school was that a I guess I'm I'm trying to understand a little bit how you got into the place of even being able to enjoy a math teacher when you got to high school because a lot of students don't enjoy that by the time they get there so was that were there things in the early experience that led you to that
0: well that's tough to say I, I had an eighth grade teacher who had us prepare what she called morning talks. We would have to actually prepare a speech and give speeches to our eighth grade class. I had never done that before, and it really kind of changed my perspective on getting up in front of people. By the time I got to eighth grade, I had never presented in front of class, never done any of that, but she really changed. I think she changed everybody in that class and made us all more outgoing and so that was kind of the first spark and then just the fact that i had some great high school teachers i I remember my history teacher his name was dick stop he was more a storyteller than he was anything else and so when we would come into american history class he would tell stories about american history and it was just these kind of stories that just captured your attention and you you couldn't help but listen to the way he described these he described them as if he were there so it just made me love that concept of teaching
1: I don't want to poison your answer
0: so I'll ask this in a different way
1: when you left high school Did you know at that point you wanted to teach?
0: I did know. I I did know that. I had already made that decision that I wanted to teach. And so you
1: picked Davidson specifically
0: because you wanted to teach and that's the route you wanted to take? Well, that's not really the reason I picked Davidson. (laughs) I picked Davidson for three reasons that had very little to do with teaching. (laughs) Number one, back then, Lefty Dressel was the coach of the basketball team and they were number 10 in the nation. Number two, it was an all-boys school, and in 1969, when I graduated from high school, there used to be a show on television called College Quiz Bowl. And Davidson had a team on there that, you, you know, if you won, you came back the next Sunday. Uh, and Davidson had a team of four guys on there. that was on there for about 10 or 12 weeks, and they were beating schools like Yale and Harvard. And, and so that impressed me. So it was an all-boys school. The basketball team was number 10 in the nation, and and they were winning on college quiz bowl. (laughs) Uh, So I applied, and my high school counselor said I couldn't get in, uh, but they accepted me anyway. That's part of the reasons I I went there. I didn't go there because I wanted to teach. I went there because of the basketball team and the quiz bowl team.
1: So as I'm listening to this story, again, I am going to poison the well just a little bit and, and ask this this way. Is it fair to say that you developed a love of learning?
0: I did. I am still an avid learner. I love learning how to do new things. To give you an example, uh, two weeks ago I went to Horton School of Business for a two and a half day boot camp. You can teach old dogs new tricks. <laughs> uh, and, and I'm trying to apply some of those things uh, today, but I still love learning. and. You know, one of the things that I did, there were a couple of years when my kids were in high school that I homeschooled them for a year or two. Um, Actually, I office schooled them. It was this room right here (laughs) where I taught them because I I wanted them to get the same kind of love of learning that I had. The the one thing that I did not learn in high school is is how to study. I, I got to Davidson and found out college is a lot harder than high school, and, and I was not really prepared for that. And it really took me a year of really making grades my mom and daddy weren't happy with before I really learned how to apply myself. Plus the fact that when I was at home in high school, they could make sure I was doing homework and those kind of things. You get off college all by yourself. Nobody's checking behind you, making you do your homework. And so I struggled the first year. Even though I loved learning, I had failed to learn how to really study. So that took me a while. So let me ask you
1: another question.
0: You picked the computer
1: as really an apt partner very early. And that may or may not be a strategic decision as of 1977, (laughs) but it, it turned out to be a very good decision over time. Did you find as you went through learning these different lessons in business that you had to go back and learn them again, that you had to try again, and you had to kind of go over the same territory a few times before you, you really got a hold of a concept or an idea in the business?
0: Sure, first of all, I had never had any business courses. I was a math major, math and science, so that, that's what I knew more than anything. The courses that I went back and took were accounting and income tax. I still didn't had never had a business course. So, from 77, when I bought the first computer, it only took me four years to be bankrupt. (laughs) Um, You know, seriously, I I was completely bankrupt in 1981 when the PC came out. In fact, we had to file for Chapter 11 bankruptcy just to keep the doors open. The bankruptcy judge said I could afford to pay about 20 cents on the dollar, uh, but my wife and I felt like we're going to pay off all our debts no matter what. It took us about six years uh, to pay out of debt, but we paid everybody every dime we owed them. So from 1977 to 1987 were very difficult years. I went through bankruptcy, had to pay out of debt. By the time we had three kids, my social security record, if you look back in 1983, I had three small children. My social security earnings for that year were about $1,700. Oh, wow. We lived on $1,700 in 1983. (laughs) You know, it it was tough. I was working 100-hour weeks. Uh, My wife had three small children at home. She was almost a single mom pretty much because I was working all the time. So I tell people it only took me 30 years to be an overnight success. (laughs) The things that I learned by failing were things that I wish I had learned in business I had a liberal arts education, and it was a good liberal arts education, but it did not prepare me for the business world. And I wish at Davidson, which is still a liberal arts school, that they would throw in some business classes, because I don't care who you are, you need some business class, as some business experience as an adult, uh, no matter what you do. And so I don't think that they gave me enough on the practical side, even though they gave me a great education in mathematics. They gave me a great education in sciences, but I had I had to make the mistakes in business on my own. I might could have avoided some of those if I had had some business background and didn't have to learn from the school of hard knocks. Do you feel like
1: learning these lessons from the school of hard knocks settled those lessons in maybe more firmly? I'm not sure, you know, on that, you know, because you you hear people who go off and become you know, the overnight success. But more often I hear your story where you have to go through that valley of frustration or despair before you're ready to make some of the more disciplined decisions that are required in in a good business. Do you think you can actually learn that some of those lessons, you know, by sitting in a class or do you think some of those lessons you, you have to learn in life? I think it's some of
0: both. Okay. I I give you a great example. You can read books on swimming. You can even watch videos on swimming. But until you actually get in the pool, there are parts of it that you can't learn from a book or even watching a video. And for me, I think that I could have picked up some things from education, but there's some of this that, well, see, I thought I knew everything. (laughs) Uh, and so that's one of the reasons that I made some mistakes early on I I thought I thought that I could grow incredibly fast so I grew my payroll size faster than I was growing my gross revenue and so that that killed me in in the space of four years so you know we had to lay people off I was having to work long hours to do it myself so if I had known Better, I would have realized I can grow this business, but I can't grow it as fast as I was trying to. Uh, the other thing that I learned is to avoid debt like plague. I, I just once I paid out of debt, my wife and I just have this viewpoint that boy, if we if we can't afford to buy it, we just don't we just don't do it. Borrowing money to get something is just not worth it. Now the exception to that is probably your home. You can't hardly save up enough to buy your own home, but, you know. So borrowing money for a home is one thing, but I, I had run up credit card debt to, you know, to pay expenses at the office, and I wish that I had not done uh, those kind of things. So that was a long answer to your short question, but really some of those things I had to learn for myself because I thought I knew it and I didn't.
1: Well. We are running a little short on time, so I'm gonna take our left-hand turn that we always take in the uh, okay. in our discussions here. You've had the opportunity of seeing the computer from, <laughs> I mean, 1977 is really early. I think the first time I saw a computer was in, you know, maybe 1984 or five, when, when, when my dad got that Epson computer. And so you've seen it from a very early perspective and you've seen it come through the PC age and t- through the internet age to now where we have uh, computers in our hands all the sure. time.
0: I've got one in my pocket.
1: Yes. And so w- with that perspective of the digital age, you know, just making its way into every aspect of our lives, being quote educated in 1977 and being educated in 2015. What does it mean in 2015 to be quote educated with Google and Wikipedia and Facebook and everything out there all those resources
0: when, when I was growing up I, I thought being educated was knowing a lot of information today we have information overload my grandkids can find out more information on Google than uh, than I ever could find out in high school on nearly anything in, in fact frequently if we have conversations and we don't know something we pull out our (laughs) cell phone and we Google it to find out the answer right then. So it it is not so much information. I, I think the important aspect of education today is how to apply the information that you have. In other words if you take an aspect of history World War II, most kids today have no idea why we got into World War II or even remember it. In fact most of them probably don't. Uh, they were born after the Vietnam War. Some of them today were born after the first desert storm. Yeah. So they don't grasp the reasons for it. And so I think it is more important than knowing facts is knowing the reasoning behind those facts and how, really how to solve problems. Problem solving is the most important thing that anybody can learn. The second would be communication, how to communicate effectively. If they know how to problem solve and they know how to communicate effectively, they can be successful in just about anything. But if they don't know those two things, knowing facts is not enough. So that answer kind of dovetails
1: nicely into our, our final question. And um, this is more of a philosophical question. With this whole conversation we've had, you know, looking back, w- what is the purpose? Of an education in, in today's world, why do we
0: get educated? Most people want to be educated so that they can earn a living. And that's part of the reason you should be educated. You should be educated so that you know how to earn a living and sustain life. That might be practical education. How to farm, how to raise things that, that are organic. My wife is on an organic kick. Uh, you know so I mean it could be practical things but there's another part of education that I think is important and that is the satisfaction of knowing that you know some things it's one of the reasons I like to still learn things because I'm frustrated when I don't know the answer to questions or at least know how to solve some of those things I'm hopeful that somebody in my grandkids' age will, will figure out the key to cancer. It's not just learn about the fact that there is cancer, but learning how to treat cancer or prevent cancer. So really, it's learning how to make a living, but knowledge for knowledge's sake is worth something too.
1: Excellent. I think we'll wrap it
0: right there. Okay. Uh,
1: thank you, Phil, for taking a moment to speak with our audience and share your your history and your uh, memories of <laughs> how you got started in the business. If our audience is
0: interested in learning more about you, what's the best way for them to do that? They can email me, phil.drake at drakesoftware.com. I'd be glad to answer any of the questions they have. Or look up drakesoftware.com and they can read about me. <laughs>
1: Excellent. Thank you so much. All
0: right. Thanks, Steve.
1: If you've been enjoying the conversations and insights here on the podcast, share it with a friend. Great ideas demand to be shared. You can also help fellow parents and educators by subscribing to the Tabletop Inventing podcast in iTunes, leaving a rating, and writing a review. If you use Android, subscribe, leave us a rating, and write a review in Stitcher. Links to subscribe can be found at www.ttinvent.com slash podcast. Contact us and we'll think through the comments and answer your questions here in the podcast. And be sure to let us know if you'd like a shout out or to remain anonymous. You can share your comments and questions at www.ttinvent.com podcast or by emailing us at podcast Let's discuss your thoughts and questions. Join us again next time when we will again seek to answer the question, what is the purpose of an education And as educators, how do we awaken the inventor in each of our students?